Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. <clears throat> well, it's nice to be here. I, I, um, <coughs> on, on Friday I taught in, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, on Saturday, Sunday, and then yesterday uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, um, I'm glad Delta got me home <laughs> with much difficulty today. Um, there were tornadoes uh, all day on Monday, Sunday and Monday. And um, so uh, it was a long day to get here. Um, but um, you know, it's interesting just coming and sitting down. One of, one of the thoughts I have is, I travel a lot, some of you know, and there and I and I go to the same places over and over again. Every year, may may only add one new new place, and um, so there is an extended sangha to the people in the room. And I know that some of you in the room know some of these people, but a lot of you don't. And so um, I've been going to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and teaching there every year for nine years now. Um, and also in Door County, Wisconsin, at a Zen center there, and uh, for the past three years in Madison, Wisconsin. And there are groups there that, that meet all the time, and they listen to all the audio talks of what happens here. They study the texts. Um, they talk with each other. I give them homework. We Skype. We email. We communicate. Um, Andrea and Alicia and Chanel and Madison and Kathleen and uh, Green Bay and Kathy Novice and Door County, who runs a Zen center there. Um, uh, Peter and Bodil and Nikolai and Heidi and Esther in Copenhagen, uh, who get together and practice. Um, they're all over the place. Uh, now there's a group starting in Victoria, one in Vancouver, one in New York City. So you know, there's kind of this extended sangha. And so for me, when I think of center of gravity, it has these webs that reach out all over. And I used to think that they begin here and they reach out, but I don't feel that way anymore. You know, now I go there and they have their own thing there that looks different. And so we try and keep the form kind of similar, um, but it's really wonderful. So um, some of you who don't know that, it's good to know that there are other people who are who are practicing. Um, Annie and Gilan and Krista, who some of you know in Halifax, um, are meeting all the time and practicing. And they have a name for their sangha. It's called East of Center. <laughs> in, in Halifax. Yeah. So, uh, so I was on the flight today and, and you know, I don't know. Delta Airlines. So sitting in Detroit for about three hours 
for a the flight from Toronto to Detroit is like 39 minutes, I think, or Detroit to Toronto is 39 minutes. We sat for a couple hours on the runway in a really hot plane, and um, so then the pilot said, just to make the plane a little cooler, just everybody shut their windows so the sun doesn't come in. You know, being in this tube. You know. <laughs> And so the guy beside me uh, looked at me and said, you, you must be a meditator. Because <laughs> I was in this tiny seat, you know, sitting with my shoes off. And, and uh, so, I, so I said, yeah, a little, you know. I always try and dodge those questions on airplanes, you know, because you're kind of cornered if someone wants to start asking you questions. So I said, what do you do? He said, oh, well, I'm a scholar of Gregorian chanting. And I'm on my way to Italy to give a talk. The first time I've ever given a talk in Italian, and um, and uh, I I've been practicing meditation for for forty years, and um, he's practiced in a lot in Japan and all over in India and Burma, Thailand, and um, so then he said, uh, I noticed you're reading the Lotus Sutra, <laughs> and I, I and I said yeah, and then I. He changed the subject. No, I can't decide if I should open the window or close the window. And he said, uh, what chapter are you on? <laughs> so I said, oh, we're on the chapter on Devadatta and violence. And it's um, like, oh, that's a good chapter. I'm like, you know, I said, yeah, you know, last week we were talking about how there's this stupa floating in the sky, how whenever you're uh, exploring the Lotus Sutra, a stupa appears. People here aren't noticing it, but it's there. This stupa appears, which uh, hovers over us while we study. And uh, he said, oh, well, um, that's because the fear of death, because a stupa is a funerary structure. He said, well, that's because the fear of death hovers over everyone all the time. It's what motivates us, everything that we do. So this was his interpretation, what we studied. I hadn't thought of that at all. Um, I, I was interpreting last week more as like, oh, so that's what I said to him. I said, well, I didn't interpret that way. I thought, I, I thought it was more like life is a funeral. And he said, isn't that a song by the band? <laughs> and I said, no, that's life is a carnival. <laughs> and he said, same thing. <laughs> So we became friends. I liked him a lot. And uh, maybe he'll start the Ann Arbor Sangha. <laughs> um, the Carnival Sangha. And um, anyway, so I thought today I would just start off talking about um, uh, fear. Because uh, his interpretation or his commentary of this afternoon made me think about this. Um, in traditional Buddhism in the Abhidharma, it said that uh, human beings can experience five different kinds of fear. Five different categories of fear. So I'll read the categories. And, you know, to be honest, I thought about it today on the runway. And it's hard to think of another category. A any kind of fear that arises for you probably will fall into one of these categories. So the first one is the fear of death. So this can be the fear of your own death. This can be the fear of someone else's death. And at bottom, it's the fear of the fact that this self that I am is um, impermanent, has an expiry date. The second kind of fear 
is the fear of the loss of livelihood. Now, when you go to Wisconsin nowadays, this anxiety is really close to the surface. So in the neighborhood where I was staying, maybe 20% of the houses were foreclosed. So you walk around this neighborhood and there's all these empty houses, you know, and they're all owned by the bank. And I'm sure there is some corporation that's going and buying these houses. There has to be, you know. Um, but the fear of the, the anxiety that comes when you lose your, your livelihood. Um, the third is, and this is a, this is a really uh, one, this one you see a lot for meditators, the fear of unusual states of consciousness. I think a lot of people have this fear, the fear of going nuts, the fear of losing your mind. Uh, or not even losing your mind, but the experience of having a mind experience reality and then start to lose its grasp on reality and experience things in the body or imaginings or hallucinations that are really terrifying. Uh, four, fear of the loss of reputation. And the fifth... Fear of speaking before a public assembly. <laughs> it's kind of funny at the end that you have this one that actually seems kind of superficial in a way. But actually, a lot of people have this fear. And I don't know if I can really think of a fear that's um, outside of it. But really, you can sum them all up by you know, a fear of a loss of something. Fear of an ending. Fear of change whether it's livelihood, whether it's certain death, whether it's your reputation. Um, and so maybe because of this fear, that's why life is like a funeral and why life is also like a carnival. <laughs> I'm surprised there's nothing like a fear of physical pain and suffering or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Could it fall into one of these categories, do you think? Um, fear of death? So remember, it's not just the fear of your death, but it's the, it's the fear of the way you move through your life. Yeah. But yeah, you could add that maybe fear of suffering. Or, you know, how much we try and avoid suffering. Cause, but maybe the avoiding suffering is based on another one of these fears. I mean, a lot of people, when, they're, when they have fear arise because of uh, pain... They, what the fear is, is fear of loss of livelihood. You know, can't support your kids. Um, let's meditate on that. Maybe we can, maybe we can add that to the list. We'll go back in, t- in the lotus situation, you can go back in time. You know, we'll just add it to the list. Yeah. Maybe we could make the Buddha look more like us. Um, so, this chapter on Devadatta, with fear in the background, and its resolution, possibly, um, begins with uh, this stupa. Does everybody know what a stupa is? No? So, um, traditionally, uh, the, the only time I've really uh, studied, a stu- I've been to a few stupas, but one that I really love is at the Shambhala Mountain Center in, uh, I forgot the name of the town, in Colorado. Um, and there, there's this incredible stupa. 
And it's, it's usually a round building. It looks like a <laughs> nuclear power station. Um, and inside it, uh, someone could be buried. There could be you know, priceless artifacts from someone who was important. And you would encircle this stupa. You make offerings to the stupa. It's like a massive gravestone. Yeah. And it's usually put on a sacred site. Or it's placed somewhere that becomes a sacred site. And uh, the, in this case, in the Lotus Sutra, in this chapter, the, there's a stupa that just arises naturally out of the earth. So it doesn't kind of float down from space, but it comes out of your life. And whenever you're studying the Lotus Sutra, it floats up in the sky. And it has in it the body of the Buddha. Um, In, in this situation, what's happened, I, I want to talk about last week, but I want to get through this week, so we'll, we'll keep going. Um, there's a stupa hovering in the sky, and uh, the Lotus Sutra comes into some people's mind, and so the, the, the stupa stays there. And then the Buddha says, a long time ago, so he's telling a parable, a long time ago I was a king. Or, uh, sorry, a long time ago there was a king. And uh, this king was... Um, you know, doing well as a leader, uh, there was something obviously gnawing at him. And uh, one day, a seer came to him, a rishi, um, obviously some kind of religious sage, and said, uh, if you obey me, and I am allowed to teach you, then I will teach you the great vehicle of the Lotus Sutra. That the Lotus Sutra is a great vehicle, and I will share it with you. And so the king says, okay, and the king supports him. And the king studies with him for a thousand years. Can you imagine that? I mean, how long have you studied with your teachers? A month, one workshop, you know, at the yoga conference? So for a thousand, imagine being at the yoga conference for a thousand years. <laughs> um, and then um, the king wakes up and has a realization and then the Buddha says, do you know who that king was? That king was no other than me. I was that king in a previous life. And that sage who taught me and gave me the skills to wake up, that was no other than Devadatta. So what's the big deal? You might think, oh, that's not such a big deal. But this is a really big deal. Because the sage is Devadatta, and Devadatta in Buddhist history is the Buddha's nemesis. Everybody needs a nemesis. And the Buddha's nemesis is Devadatta. Can you think of your nemesis? Don't say it out loud. <laughs> Just think of your nemesis. So, in a past life, when you became more awake than you are now, it was only because your teacher was your present-day nemesis. Or your past nemesis is your present-day teacher. That's kind of an interesting thing to contemplate, isn't it? But, but, it's a, but it's a nemesis again. You could say it's an enemy. Or it's somebody who gets under your skin. Usually it's someone who's a lot like you. Actually. 
Yeah, I have a friend who's a who's a great artist, and she said to me, you know, I, I like a lot of art, but nobody ever likes anyone that's doing something like they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So could you say maybe then even your current nemesis could be your current teacher? Yeah, for sure. Well, you see, Lotus Sutra has rubber time. So it's like, if something's happening a thousand years ago or a thousand years to the future, whether it's the past or the present, it's all happening now. You could also say that um, every uh, enemy that you've ever had has been your teacher. Mm-hmm. And every teacher that you could ever have also can be your enemy. Mm-hmm. Maybe a good teacher is an enemy to a certain extent because they're showing you something you don't see. It's interesting to explore. But if we just back up a little bit, one thing that's really important here is that this king decides to support this sage come hell or high water. And um, I think sometimes the reason why we find a teacher or someone who is a mentor is because we, they inspire us and we just want to hang out with them. Uh, on my way down to, um, uh, I can't remember where I was, Wisconsin, um, I was reading an interview, uh, I think it was in The Guardian with Leonard Cohen, and he was talking about, they were asking him, you know, why did you go study with uh, Sasaki Roshi at Mount Baldy? He said, I just love the Roshi. I just love the Roshi. He called me Cohn. <laughs> you know, and if any of you know the story, you know, uh, um, you know Leonard, Leonard Cohen is actually a Roshi. Um, he, he, was given, he was given the job for the past 30 years, I guess, of cooking for Sasaki Roshi. And that's his job in the monastery. Uh, he's the personal cook to the Roshi. So if you're the cook, that's three meals a day. It's three meals, you're right there with the old man. I think Sasaki Roshi's 103. Mm-hmm. He's still teaching, 103 years old. You ever see pictures of him? He's like this big and really <laughs> stocky. <laughs> And um, when, he, when you see pictures of him sitting, it looks like there's just a boulder <laughs> sitting on the ground. And you couldn't do anything to move him. And uh, maybe that's why he's 103. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> he is the Lotus Sutra. He is the Lotus Sutra. Um, and I was really touched by this interview uh, and how Leonard Cohen was saying, you know, it wasn't actually the practice or the sitting or the simple routines or getting up at 2.30 in the morning that inspired him. Uh, it was that he loved the Roshi. He just loved the man, and he just and I feel this with my teachers. Like I really love the practices, but more than the practices, I love them. I want to be around them whenever I can. I just planned a retreat with one of my teachers that I'm going to do for a few weeks, and um, every night while I was away deciding whether I should go or not, I dreamed about him. I said, "Okay, I'm going to go." Yeah. Um. I thought I would read the uh, little poem at the end of the interview that Leonard Cohen wrote. This is for his teacher. He, it was his teacher's birthday. Some of you know this already. So he wrote his teacher. Every couple of years, he writes his teacher a poem on his birthday. So this is his poem for Sasaki Roshi. I never really understood what he said, but every now and then I find myself barking with the dog or bending with the irises or helping out in other little ways. I love this first line. I never really understood what he said. (laughs) I mean, maybe you don't need to. Maybe you don't need to come here even every Tuesday night and understand the details or the analysis of the Lotus Sutra. 
Maybe you just need to come here and feel the Lotus Sutra and the presence of everyone here. Just like this is recorded and the people in Madison, Wisconsin and the people in Copenhagen and Istanbul and so on will listen to this talk and they will be connected to you and also back to themselves without even understanding. And then you just find yourself helping out a little bit. Uh, Can I help you put the cushion back and the stool away? You look uncomfortable. Can I move that for you? You really have to pee. You go first. <laughs> this is, these are the, the words in the Lotus Sutra. The king at that time was I myself, and this seer was the man who is now Devadatta. All because Devadatta was a good friend to me, I was able to become fully... Would you say this about your nemesis? All because Devadatta was a good friend to me, I was able to become fully endowed with the six paramitas. Do you know the six paramitas? Uh, Some of you might know in in Buddhist teachings that there are ten paramitas, but in the Lotus Sutra there's only six paramitas. Uh, The first one is dana, which is generosity, which is where we get the word donation or giving. So we have a box, for example, over there that says dana. Someone asked me recently, why is Dana's name on the box? <laughs> so, this box is the box of Dana, and um, we give generously. And every week, as we put the money into the box, we meditate on, you know, is this an amount of money that I'm giving unconsciously? You know, just throwing it in, just, you know, reach in, get some change, toss it in. Um, Am I skipping out on giving money this week? Am I being stingy? Am I giving more than I can really give? There are people like that who just give way, way more than they can give. Or have I not really been given enough? I mean, how the teaching is offered free, even though the rent is not free. The teachings are free. And so how can I give in a way that can support the teachings and the sangha and so on? Um... The next paramita is uh, virtue or morality. The third paramita is patience or tolerance. Uh, In Sanskrit, it's kshana paramita. Uh, The fourth is virya, which is enthusiasm. The fifth one is dhyana paramita, which is concentration. And the sixth one is pragna, which is wisdom. So, what did the Buddha learn from Devadatta? This is the big deal of the story. He learned generosity, morality, patience, acceptance, enthusiasm, concentration, and wisdom. That's quite a lot. How did he learn it? He says, and then what I learned, and the way I learned it from Devadatta, was through the four Brahma-viharas, the four immeasurables. Uh, Loving kindness, in Pali that's uh, metta, which is from the Sanskrit word maitri. Um, Compassion, or karuna. The third is sympathetic joy, mudita. And the fourth is upeksha, or upeka in Pali, which is equanimity. It's kind of a beautiful thing. Could you reflect on studying with your enemy for a thousand years? And them teaching you 
all of these characteristics, whether it's generosity, wisdom, patience. Do your enemies teach you patience? Concentration? Insight? Um, meeting your experience from a place of treating whatever's arising equally. So whether it's joy or whether it's pain, whether it's boredom or fascination, just meeting it with a sense of... Um, I send, when I think of equanimity, I often think of like the equal sign in mathematics. Yeah. Letting all states kind of equal one another, kind of balance each other out. It's like samastitihi. Um, so Thich Nhat Hanh um, was inspired by this chapter of the Lotus Sutra, and I just thought I would read uh, what he wrote. Uh, this is from his uh, book, Peace is Every Step. Does everybody know who, who Thich Nhat Hanh is? He's a Vietnamese activist and Zen teacher now living in a monastery in the south of France that you can visit, called Plum Village. Um, In Plum Village, where I live in France, we receive many letters from the refugee camps in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines, hundreds each week. It's very painful to read them, but we have to read them because we have to be in contact We try our best to help, but suffering is enormous, and sometimes we are discouraged. It's said that half the boat people die in the ocean. Only half the boat people arrive at the shores in Southeast Asia, and even then they may not be safe. There are many young girls, boat people, who are raped by sea pirates. Even though the United Nations and many countries try to help the government of Thailand prevent that kind of piracy, sea pirates continue to inflict much suffering on the refugees. One day, we received a letter telling us about a young girl on a small boat who was raped by a Thai pirate. She was only 12. And then she jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. When you first learn of something like that, you get angry at the pirate. You naturally take the side of the girl. As you look more deeply, you will see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, then it's easy. You only have to take a gun and you shoot the pirate. But we cannot do that. Uh, He goes on to say that, He couldn't sleep, and he was really upset by this, and I'm just going to skip ahead. Uh, In my meditation, I saw that if I was born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same condition he was, there's a great likelihood I would become a pirate. I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, hundreds every day, and if we educators, social workers, politicians, and others do not do something about the situation... In 25 years, a number of them will become sea pirates. That is certain. If you or I were born today in those fishing villages, we may, see, we may become sea pirates in 25 years. If you take a gun and you shoot the pirate, 
All of us are to some extent responsible for this state of affairs. So after a long meditation, I wrote this poem. When you listen to it, there are three people, a 12-year-old girl, the pirate, and me. Can we, can we look at each other and recognize ourselves in each other? I'll, I'll read the poem. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in stone. Jewel in a stone. Good. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear pond, and I'm also the grass snake, who approaching in silence feeds itself on the frog. I am a child in Uganda, skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am an arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am a 12-year-old girl, a refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politurbo, with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that joy and pain are one. Call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. That's Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary. Um, one detail in this story that's left out in this version is that when the sea pirates raped this 12-year-old girl, it happened in front of her family. And then right afterwards, she jumped into the ocean and died. So imagine you receive this, this letter. I mean, we receive this news all the time through Facebook and the New York Times or whatever. But actually for you to receive this letter from someone who was on the boat, who was traumatized by this. And of course, you know, imagine if this was your 12-year-old daughter. Your response would be, it would be like if it was your 12-year-old daughter. And at the same time, um, in, after Thich Nhat Hanh did this, he then uh, has put a lot of effort into sending his monks to go in to Vietnam and into the Philippines and into Thailand to create schools and education programs for these young kids who are growing up to become sea pirates. Imagine if we could do this with our prisons. Imagine if we could take all of our prisons and turn them into monasteries. Could you imagine this? Everybody sitting together in the morning and then maybe uh, learning how to grow food. Maybe everyone in the prison cooking the food. 
together. When I was in Wisconsin, um, every day I drove past this high security prison, maximum security prison, and uh, uh, there's a, an old sign. The, pr- the prison was built in like 1860 something. And it's like the Don Jail, you know, where it still it, it has that look. But it, it's probably um, uh, in this one who was gone. You could imagine like the Don Jail, really crowded and loud, you know, and dirty. And um, and I noticed the sign uh, on the cornerstone that said 1860 whatever had a sign, and it was called the reformatory. That's what they called the prison when they built it, a reformatory. So, um, there's not much to say after the Thich Nhat Hanh story. I, I think he really sums it up. Um, we all have a nemesis. And I think we all have a nemesis we want to lock away. Don't we? Don't you all have someone you want to send away for a while? Or maybe you're away for a while. <laughs> yeah. And um, the Buddha is saying, well, I, I, I could never really deeply um, find in me the quality of generosity <coughs> until I learned from Devadatta. Um so I thought I would just tell you who Devadatta is. Um, this is uh, Jean Reeves. According to many stories, Devadatta was the son of King Supa Buddha, and his wife Pamita was an aunt of the Buddha. So that means his sister, Yasodhara, was the Buddha's wife, making him both a cousin and a brother-in-law to the Buddha. Those are the worst nemesis. <laughs> they're actually related to you, and they're going to be at... The Seder. <laughs> um, together with Ananda and others, he became a monk, this is Devadatta, early in the Buddha's ministry. It said he was a very good monk, known for his grace and psychic and magical powers. So that's the worst kind of nemesis also. Not only are they related to you, but they're really good at what they do, and they're successful, and they're graceful. Um, And then only later did he become greedy for power and start making trouble for the Buddha. One day, in a large assembly, Devadatta approached the Buddha and asked to be made the leader of the Sangha. So the two worst things you can do to gain, you know, if you want to incur the worst karma, the worst thing you can do, period, is try and kill a Buddha. And the second worst thing you can do is split up a community. Just so, just so you know. So, Devadatta is said to have become very angry, vowing to take refuge on the Buddha, revenge on the Buddha. He had followers, one of whom was Ajasatu. Together they planned to kill both Ajatasatu's father, King Bimbisara, and Devadatta's enemy, the Buddha. According to legend, this is, I forgot, this is really funny. According to legend, the first attempt to kill the Buddha involved a complicated plot to hire a man to kill the Buddha who would in turn be killed by two other men who would in turn be killed by four other men who would then be killed by eight other men. (laughs) (laughs) But when the first man came close to the Buddha, he became so frightened 
He put down his weapons and became a follower of the Buddha. And eventually, all the men down the line came to kill the Buddha and eventually saw the transformation of the previous uh, murderer and decided to become followers of the Buddha. (laughs) Another attempt to kill the Buddha, it happened three times, is said to have happened on Holy Eagle Peak, where the Lotus Sutra and many other sutras are supposed to have been preached by the Buddha. From above the Eagle Peak, there is a platform one-fourth of the way down the mountain. You can go there and see this. Devadatta pushed a huge stone down the platform and threw it down at the Buddha. And on its way, it struck someone else. A small piece flew off and hurt the Buddha's foot, causing it to bleed, but without doing any serious damage, except to the karma of Devadatta. The last attempt involved getting a fierce elephant drunk. <laughs> when the elephant, and if you know this story, uh, there's a couple details about it. One is, is that uh, uh, the elef- this one elephant that they got drunk had six tusks. Remember we studied this a few weeks ago? Um, and also, elephants used to congregate in elephant caves. And uh, apparently in Sri Lanka there are these caves where the mineral content in the wall of the cave is very high. And so elephants like to go in the caves and chew on the minerals in the inside of the caves. So the caves can get really crowded with elephants. Um, but the caves also got really smooth. And so that's they would become holy. And that's where the meditators used to go into elephant caves because the walls were so smooth. But it was dangerous in the construction process. <laughs> Um, when the elephant saw the Buddha coming at, uh, to, to the cave, the elephant raised its ears, trunks, and tusks and charged at him. But when the elephant came close, the Buddha radiated compassion towards the elephant, causing it to stop, get sober, and become <laughs> quiet. Have you ever done this? Maybe to a parent, you know. Um, The Buddha then stroked its trunk and whispered to it softly. Um, The elephant took its trunk and some dust and scattered it around the Buddha's feet and then went away and and, and remained completely tame from that time on. Aren't those good? So that Devadatta was a bad guy. A really, really bad guy. Um, um, here's what Dogen says. When an ordinary person realizes it, she is a sage. When a sage realizes it, she's an ordinary person. It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? So, when you wake up to this possibility of having compassion, even for those that we scapegoat, even for those parts of us that we compartmentalize, um, then you become a sage. Yeah? In other words, you allow everything in and to be part of your practice. And then, when a sage wakes up, she's just ordinary. It's back to ordinary life. And this is this theme we get over and over in the Lotus Sutra. That we're on this really bad and bumpy road, sometimes alone, sometimes with community, sometimes with thugs. 
And you never know who you're going to meet, but the path is the road. And every time we think there's a treasure, we realize when we get there that it was just a treasure that helped us move forward along the road. The career, the family, the letting go of your career, your yoga teacher training, your letting go of your yoga teacher training. Um, these are all just phantom um, toll booths on the road. And where's the road heading? Well, it's like a Mubia strip. It's, it's heading back to, into itself. And here we are, in like halfway through the Lotus Sutra, and we still haven't even heard about the Lotus Sutra. And Nichiren, who uh, I believe is in the same century as Dogen, he, he really had, like, felt terrible in his life from his past. He had this kind of Protestant kind of guilt. And um, his main practice was just chanting the Lotus Sutra. The, the title. Maybe in English, it would, in English it's Dharma Flower Sutra. Or Dharma Flowering. And you just chant this all the time. And you don't even study the Lotus Sutra. You just chant it. You just chant the name Lotus Sutra. It's good enough. Uh, in some schools, they take the text, they put it in a room... And then they sit there for 21 days. There's a couple references to this. We, I think we passed them already. This 21-day ritual, where you sit in the same room as a Lotus Sutra for 21 days, and every day at the end of the day, you confess your sins. So this is kind of interesting. In other words, the Lotus Sutra, you, you, again, they're not studying it. It's just sitting in the room with you, supporting you. And then um, some people, they just take the actual Lotus Sutra and they just turn it 21 times. Isn't that kind of beautiful? Maybe it's like type A people, they're just like so busy, you know, (laughs) trying to find more oil. They don't have time to study the Lotus Sutra, so they just turn it 21 times and they get the same benefit. Um, anyways, I wrote a little poem on the airplane. This is my response to Thich Nhat Hanh. Palestine, the state of Israel. Israel at the bar, all of us at the bar, drunk on power. My mother in Israel, raising money again for victims of terror. Isn't it easy to say it? terrorist? It's like your wrist, or mine, a heart. War helps people feel good about themselves, and country is a term to measure that failure. That's for my mom. Any comments or questions before we finish chanting? Um, This chapter is a lot longer. uh, But actually, I learned recently that it used to be split up. And at some point, and nobody can agree on when, the two different stories in the chapter got put together. Uh, So next week, we're going to do the second half of the chapter, which is about an eight-year-old girl. Um, And uh, there's a very famous koan about her. And so next week we'll we'll study that section and, and learn the koan.
if you're wondering why we only got to half the, the chapter. So any questions or comments before we wrap up? Yeah. What? Why is that the, like the book, the Lotus Sutra, is a, um, a sort of like Bible or yeah. the Buddha? Yeah, the Lotus Sutra is a text that wasn't written in the Buddha's time. It was compiled, uh, f- well, we don't know when it was compiled, but it was translated um, from Sanskrit to Chinese in 406 AD. So it's really old. And yeah, it's basically like a Bible. The problem with it is that the whole text, oh, I I don't want to give away the text, but we're halfway through the text, and the whole text has been about how the Buddha is about to um, preach the Lotus Sutra, and what will happen, like a stupa will show up, it'll start raining, beams of light will come. But we still haven't heard the, actually, the teaching of the Lotus Sutra yet. Or maybe we have. It's really hard to say. Why is it called Lotus Sutra? We don't know yet. (laughs) Still getting there. That's why people say, you know, what are you studying? Studying Lotus Sutra. Well, what, you know, what's happening? Well, Lotus is like a flower, right? Mm -hmm. And Sutra, what does Sutra mean? It's a text. Philosophical text. I'm nervous to say something because I'm thinking of the people in um, Copenhagen. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're really, really, really intelligent. <laughs> um, <laughs> Have you ever been to Copenhagen? Everybody has a PhD. The university is free. It's completely free there. You sit in a room and everyone has a doctorate. So what what was your comment? <laughs> Well, I was thinking about my nemesis and thinking about this kind of fallen angel slash wily coyote nemesis of the Buddhas. And just thinking how um, insignificant my nemesis and some of the lessons. Like, it's just interesting thinking about the scale of this nemesis who was so brilliant and who was so cunning in his Uh uh, attempts offing but then, then thinking about when you were pointing at our yeah. thinking of our own nemesis they're so small in their little uh, differences like your internal well just even the, the real person you know like you know uh-huh. Rose is my nemesis you know yeah. it's, it's, you know it's, they're so lovely you know <laughs> in general yeah. it's, just, it's funny to think about uh, finding an actual nemesis yeah. someone to really yeah. sink your teeth into yeah. and you're describing like a pirate or yeah. somebody who mm-hmm. you actually do hate and yeah. so anyway I'm just um, it's, it's interesting to think of a fodder for this yeah. things, things that are actually much closer yeah. those of us who are privileged not to mm-hmm. have a real mm-hmm. nemesis in our life yeah, I, mean, I like to do this sometimes with like politicians you know like, just to, like, close your eyes and picture, you know, Stephen Harper playing ball with his son, you know. Mm-hmm. And, like, how there's something he does where he's probably some really good man. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> to really try and meditate on that. <laughs> I was thinking about this because I've been hanging out at the, the new monk library a lot this month. Uh, 
And, you know, you just can't think too much about how that library came to be. And yet, you're in this beautiful library. So how can we hold both sides of these? Yeah. Go on. But I feel like uh, Nemesis can really just as easily be uh, somebody that you don't really even know. Just, you know, it, it, it most most of the time I feel like it, it's, it's somebody who hasn't even done anything to you. It's just something, a person that you can like obsess about. Oh, yeah. Based on like <laughs> something that you think yeah. you may know about them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I feel like, I mean, I don't know how many people really have somebody who has, like, really harmed them. Yeah. In this story, uh, remember all that whole list of fears, right? Fear of death, fear of losing your reputation. Devadatta did all of that to the Buddha. Every single one of those things. So, yeah, I mean, there are some nemesis that are kind of invisible, and maybe even it's mostly your own projection. And then there are some people, and they're out to get you. I mean, that's good to think about. Like, have you ever had somebody? I've had this experience where there's someone who's out to get you. It's really awful. It makes you lose your faith in human beings, if you had any. (laughs) To begin with. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, this might be ignorant, but isn't Mara the uh-huh. Buddha's nemesis, or is Mara, because Mara seems to take on the form of, like, yeah. tempting him. Yeah. Yeah. Are they the same? Uh, yeah, you could say they're the same, uh, except, you know, this is written, like, 700 years later, after the Mara stories. Um, some people argue... And this is getting into a bit of scholarship, but some people argue that um, the Devadatta stories actually were added later uh, just to create a story of a nemesis for the Buddha. Yeah, Yeah, but, you know, he doesn't have one nemesis. Devadatta is like one of many. Mara is also uh, that which tortures him um, the closer he gets to freedom the more he gets tortured. One more comment. Someone who hasn't had a chance yet. Uh, A man? (laughs) (laughs) Or a woman in a man body? (laughs) Yes, a woman in a man body. (laughs) Um, About this nemesis. Uh Uh-huh. Thing that you're talking about this uh-huh. thing, I found that I never or I didn't have an impression of ever creating enemies or nemesis. Uh-huh. Yeah. But then I find when one does risk-taking things, people get scared uh-huh. and they misinterpret what it yep. is mm-hmm. think you are doing. Yeah. And now it seems I have uh-huh. Nemesai? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't know how to help them other than just continuing to be me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting comment because how do you help them when, when the aggression is coming towards you? They want me. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh's meditating and all he can think about is getting a gun. And that's not what he does. He ends up going and building a school. Right. So how's he helping them? Well, he's helping them, first of all, by recognizing in himself how he's caught and how he wants to get a gun. Han, get your gun. He doesn't. Yeah. And most of us, you know, we don't, we don't have that capacity in our meditation to be able to stop ourselves from getting the gun. For most of us, we go get the gun. Uh, hopefully, most of you not literally getting a gun, but a lot of us probably come pretty close, <laughs> right? To be so angry, you just you want to just shut something down. Um, and you know that's why you know maybe in history why so many uh, Buddhists really have this history of compassion towards enemies. I mean, you know, for all the controversy around the Dalai Lama, I mean, he's still. Um, been a pretty incredible leader. And I mean, to have a leader in this world that is as well known as the Dalai Lama, who doesn't even have his own country, doesn't even have an army, is, is pretty, uh, we're not used to, to seeing that. Did you have your hand up? Um, I have one comment, I guess, yeah. to make. Uh, it, it reminds me of, uh, in a different tradition, in the Toltec tradition, of the idea of the petty tyrant. Uh-huh. And aligning yourself with the petty tyrant. Yeah. What Nemesis makes me think of. Uh-huh. Kind of um, in order to learn all the things that the yeah. Buddha learns from Yeah. yeah. Like to, to kind of consciously put yourself into a place where there's that difficulty with another being. Yeah. And to find compassion in it and to, to find all those things to be able to meet them that way. Yeah. And not give them the power. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I you know, when I drove from uh, uh, Green Bay, no, where uh, uh, Madison to Green Bay, it's a three-hour drive. It was on Sunday night, and the sky was pink and purple, and there was a tornado. And have you ever seen this? I've never seen this before. So, like, there's these clouds, and they come really low down to the ground, and they're purple, and then everything's pink, and you see these lines. And they're like those 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 lines, and they have these sirens everywhere uh, in Madison uh, that are going off because it's a, a tornado sirens. And just to think about all the people who have farms there, who every year during tornado season decide to stay put and like really be there on the land. And maybe some people say it's foolish, and they get their barn ripped off, or their and they stay there and they really know the land. Maybe all of us, you know, uh, are practicing because we have these tornadoes, you know, and they come at us and we like are trying to hide, get in the basement, get in the, and like we're learning how to like dig in and, and be here for them in our relationships, in our bodies, in our life. And maybe this is how, how faith develops, um, to actually pick, pick a piece of land and really um, dig in. Okay, so I want to keep talking, except I promise I would end on time tonight. So we'll continue next week. We have a great second half of this chapter next week.
an eight-year-old girl is going to get enlightened. Even though she's a girl. She's going to get enlightened. So let's finish chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. Awaken. Not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. Namaste. Thank you for being here. Please don't forget the Donna box. Can you point out the Donna box? Right there. Dana's box. <laughs> and uh, secondly, um, please email uh, me through Center of Gravity website if you have any suggestions for chartered accountants who have experience with charitable organizations. Okay, class to